All right, this is session five of how we got our Bible. Our fifth week of ten. We are talking about the English translations. How was the Bible translated into English? We're already experts in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, we understand all about that. If we don't, we can ask Aaron here. He's He's got it all down. I, I know those 70. You know, you know those 70. <laughs> so we talked last time about the Old English or Anglo-Saxon period from 450 to 1150. This is the earliest period of the English language. We said there was no translation of the entire Bible during this period. There wasn't much need for it. Most people were illiterate. Uh, language was just developing. English was just developing as a language. People who could, uh, who were educated, learned Latin because Latin was the universal language of the Western world during the Middle Ages. Uh, from about the year 300, the Western Roman Empire, from 300 till 1500, Latin was the universal language, and even later. So those who wanted to, wanted to read the Bible or could read, read the Latin translation called the Latin Vulgate. There was some translation work done to, during this period, this portion. It was all done from the Latin Vulgate, not from the Hebrew and Greek, because in the Western Roman Empire, the Western Europe, the knowledge of Hebrew had been lost. Christians didn't have anything to do with Jews. And the knowledge of Greek had been lost. The Western church had split off from the Eastern. There was a schism, a division between the Greek Orthodox, we might say is called today, and the Roman Catholic Church in the, in, in the West. Same is true in the Middle English period. The Middle English period, remember this was the time when English changed quite a bit because in 1066, William... The conqueror conquered England. He came from France. A Frenchman conquered England and became the king of England, William I. So you had a tremendous French influence. The French language influenced English language, and English changed. And there was no complete translations of the Bible until the end of this period by John Wycliffe. In the 14th century, Wycliffe... Uh, produced about 1380 a translation of the Bible. The first complete translation of the Bible into English. Now again, it was a translation of the Latin Vulgate. Um, a translation of the Latin Vulgate. Wycliffe didn't know any Greek. Wycliffe didn't know any Hebrew. Nobody in the West really knew any, any Christians knew Hebrew. They didn't know Greek or Aramaic. So he translated from the Latin Vulgate. <clears throat> he got into a lot of trouble for translating. The church was opposed to bringing a translation in the English language because people, they thought, would develop all kinds of heretical thing, thinking if they did. Well, the truth is they would deviate from Roman Catholic teaching, and he did. He got into trouble because he questioned transubstantiation, the doctrine of the Mass, and so forth. He questioned the Pope's infallibility and so forth. So he got into trouble, and uh, his doctrines were condemned. So later in English history here, we'll see references to the heretical teachings of Wycliffe. 
and uh, his body his body was exhumed after he died. About forty years after he died, and they burned his bones. He was declared a heretic, and they passed a, in, in fourteen oh eight. They passed a law called the Constitutions of Oxford that said you can't translate the Bible into English at all or any common tongue. So Wycliffe was the first complete translation of the Bible into English. These were expensive things. Nobody could afford these things. You'd have to be rich to afford them. This is handwritten Bible, remember? <laughs> There's no printing press here. So anybody who had this a Wycliffe Bible, this would have to be very wealthy. We come to the modern English period. We're in the early modern period, 1475 to 1780. We talked last time about William Tyndall. Tyndall was the first person to translate into English the Bible from the original Hebrew and the original Greek. Now, we know him primarily just for his New Testament because he worked on the Old Testament, but he was burned at the stake before he could finish the Old Testament before he could work on it. He was working on it. But he first translated the New Testament in 1526. It was the first translation out of the Greek language into English. Translators that follow him just copy Tyndall. They just revise and improve. They don't start afresh. They look at Tyndall. And it's said that probably 85% of the King James is Tyndall, really. Now, there's no connection between Wycliffe and Tyndall. Wycliffe was the translation of the Latin Vulgate in the Middle English period. That has nothing to do with William Tyndall. The Bibles that follow will copy Tyndall. Tyndall is the originator, the father of the English Bible, but not Wycliffe. Wycliffe is translation of the Latin Vulgate, so there's no direct connection here. But there is a connection, as we'll see, between Tyndall and everybody that follows right down to the day. The next Bible we want to look at here on our list here is Coverdale's Bible. Remember I said that Tyndall had translated the New Testament. England was a Roman Catholic country. Henry VIII was the king. He was given the Defender of the Faith Award by the Pope. Now later he broke with the Pope. But at first, he was a very, very loyal Roman Catholic monarch. And uh, Tyndall wanted to translate the Bible in English, but of course it was outlawed in England, so he, he, did his, did, he did his work on the continent in Europe. And remember we said Tyndall was burned at the stake. He was captured, burned at the stake in Europe. And, uh, um, and declared a heretic and so forth in... Uh, in uh, 15, trying to get his date of his uh, of his death. 15. What did I say? 34, 34, 30, 30, 30, 36. Yes, 1536. Well, uh, Miles Coverdale produced the Bible in 1535. Miles Coverdale was uh, a an assistant to. Uh, William Tyndall. Because the Reformation had started, Luther 1517, his 95 theses, Luther in Germany was 
published was, was, was had started the Protestant Reformation, as we say, opposing Roman Catholic doctrine, teaching the authority of the scriptures, going back to the Bible. Luther had translated the Bible into German for the common people. These ideas were influencing all over Europe, infecting people, and, and people are, and it infected William Tyndall. It affected uh, Coverdale. Coverdale, as I say here, was a graduate of Cambridge. He was an Augustinian monk in the Roman Catholic Church. But he left because of the Reformation teaching. And he just joined, uh, he joined Tyndall, helping him, aiding him uh, on the continent. Uh, he was an assistant to Tyndall. Tyndall had a number of assistants who worked with him. And in 1535, he produced uh, his own Bible called the Coverdale's Bible, we call it today. Um, it, was, it was a completion sort of, of Tyndall's work. Remember, Tyndall had done the New Testament. His New Testament was a slight revision of William Tyndall's work. In the Old Testament, Tyndall had translated the Pentateuch and had published the Pentateuch as a separate document in 1530 and he had published Jonah and so he took that Pentateuch and he took Jonah for his Old Testament what did he do with the rest of the Old Testament Coverdale did not know Hebrew he was not not a particular Hebrew scholar so for the rest of the Old Testament he translated from the one Bible he could read what would that Bible be the Vulgate he went back to the Latin Vulgate. Everybody could read the Latin Vulgate. So he translated from the Latin Vulgate the rest of the Old Testament, not from Hebrew, but from Latin into English. Now, he also looked at what other Bibles had done, like Luther had, he knew German. Luther had translated the Bible into German, so he knew German. And so he used that. He used some other works to make his translation. These Bibles often had woodcuts. These are just wood carvings that are made, and then they print or stamp this <coughs> as part of the Bible. Here's his woodcut of the six days of creation. Notice that there are no verse divisions at this time. Remember when we talked about the Greek New Testament, we said that Robert Estian first put the verse divisions in his 1551. We're not in 1551 yet. But we're going to eventually see those verse divisions get into an English Bible here eventually. But right now, there's chapter divisions, but there's no uh, verse division. This is this kind of block, gothic type here. It's a little difficult to read. Um, this is Coverdale's Bible. Now, Coverdale, uh, the Latin Vulgate, as I've said over time, had... Uh, had had included in it those books in the Apocrypha. Remember those Apocryphal books we've been talking about, those 15 books that were written by Jews in the inter, 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 intertestamental period? Jews never looked, looked upon them as canonical, and neither did Christians. Most Christians didn't. Now, eventually, I said in 1546, the Roman Catholic Church called them canonical, declared them canonical, but not at this time. And these people were... Protestants opposed the Roman Catholic Church, they they still printed the Apocrypha in their Bibles. So here is the table of contents for Coverdale's Bible. 
He's got the Old Testament, but then notice he's got the Apocrypha right here in between the Old and New Testament because it was written during that time period. Now, he didn't, he didn't put it in there because he thought the Apocrypha were part of the Bible. He just thought it was good literature. We'll talk, I'll, I'll read you some stuff here in a moment about the Apocrypha explaining what I'm saying here. But these Bibles all include the Apocrypha, including the King James Version. 1611 King James Version includes the Apocrypha. So when people say, I want the 1611, no, they don't want the 1611. The 1611 has the Apocrypha in it. And, you know, people who are King James only don't believe in the Apocrypha, certainly. But these Bibles contain the Apocrypha. So Coverdale produced his Bible. We come now to Henry VIII. Henry VIII was the king during this time, reigned from 1509 to 1547. We'll have to say a lot about Henry VIII. So we're going back in time now because Miles Coverdale produced his Bible in 1535. And Tyndall was put to death. Park prop, a good, a lot of it had to do with Henry VIII. So we're going back in time here now. As I say, Henry VIII came to the throne in 1509 when his brother died. His brother, older brother Arthur, died, who was the oldest son. And Henry came to the eighth, and then he was persuaded to marry Arthur's widow, Catherine of Aragon. Catherine had been Arthur's wife, and he was prepared. He was he was persuaded to marry her. Now, this took a special papal dispensation because this was technically incest. To marry your brother's wife was technically incest in church law, so you couldn't do it. But they thought politically this was good. She was a Spanish princess. Remember at this time, these marriages are arranged between the monarchs of one country versus a monarch of another, a princess of another country. She was a Spanish princess, and uh, she he, they thought this would be a good idea to seal uh, European relations. So he didn't much like this idea, but he went along with it. He got a papal dispensation. And uh, so they had one child, a daughter named Mary, Bloody Mary. We'll come to her in a little while here. They had one daughter, Mary. Henry wasn't too happy about that because he didn't think that a woman could rule uh, England, could rule Britain and so forth. And uh, he thought that he needed a male heir. He thought that you know people might not follow a woman and so forth, and so he needed a male heir. So he wanted to get a male heir. So he wanted to get a divorce from Mary, and his basis for getting a divorce was he was saying this marriage was really not legal to start off with. It really wasn't right that I married Mary to start off with, and he wanted to get the Pope to issue um, uh, an annulment of the marriage. And normally the Pope would do this for a king like Henry I mean, the Roman Catholic Church initiates annulments like crazy. I don't know if you know that. They don't have a divorce, but they have annulments like you wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't believe. I mean, the governor, the previous Republican governor, what was his name? Uh, um, who's our previous Republican governor? Engler. I mean, he got a he got a annulment after he'd been married 30 years. You remember? He'd been married 30 years or so, and he got an annulment. Married and had remember had those twins, you know, had another wife. So, so you can get annulments in the Roman Catholic Church, and so normally he, he would have gotten this annulment. 
But there was all kinds of political problems because the Pope wouldn't grant it because his wife, Catherine, Henry's wife, Catherine, was the aunt of, of the King of Spain. She was a Spaniard. She was the aunt of the King of Spain. And the King of Spain was controlling the papacy. He had his armies at the Vatican. And he was controlling what the Pope did and so forth, so the Pope wouldn't issue this annulment. Normally he would. He didn't care. It was just a political deal. But he wouldn't do it. So that presented a problem. There was a man at, uh, at uh, Cambridge University, a lecturer by the name of Thomas Cranmer. Now he goes on to become Archbishop of Canterbury. But Thomas Cranmer is there. And he is looking at some legal things. And he says he thinks that legally that this marriage can be set aside. There's legal justice, there's English law, there's precedence here that this marriage can be set aside and he can get a divorce. And so uh, Henry points him Archbishop of Canterbury. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the highest clergyman in the Roman Catholic Church. It used to be in England. So the highest clergyman in the Roman Catholic Church uh, was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He still is, but now it's now it's the Anglican Church. He's the head. He's the highest clergyman there. But so he gets appointed the head, sort of the English Roman Catholic Church, and so he uh, is appointed this, and he promptly declares this marriage invalid, and he annuls. They get this marriage annulled to Catherine of Aragon in 1533. Now Henry had already become enchanted with a a lady there in court by the name of Anne Boleyn. And he, she was already pregnant before he married her, but he gets this annulment, and he marries Anne Boleyn. And she's pregnant with the, his second child, Elizabeth. So Henry's first child is Mary. She'll reign eventually. Elizabeth, she'll reign eventually. It's his, his second child. And so Henry uh, breaks with the Roman Catholic Church in 1534. So in 1534, Henry, because he wants to get this divorce, he wants this annulment, he wants to marry, and the Pope won't let him, he decides to break with the Roman Catholic Church, setting up the Church of England, with Henry as the supreme head instead of the Pope. So instead of the Pope being the head like of the Roman Catholic Church, Henry is the head. The king is the head of the Church of England. Sometimes we call the Anglican Church. Or in, the, in America, that's the Episcopal Church, uh, which is a branch, really, of the Anglican Church. So uh, Henry uh, establishes the Church of England. He is the supreme head of the church. Uh, Thomas Cranmer is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, he does this not because for religious reasons. He's not breaking with Rome like the Reformers did, like Luther and Calvin, Zwingli. He's not breaking with Rome for because he's, he, he really embraces Protestant doctrine and he opposes Roman Catholic doctrine. He's breaking for political reasons. But when he breaks for political reasons, he has to buy into some of the Reformation doctrines and so forth. And so it looks like he's kind of becoming more of a Protestant at first, uh, they established, Cranmer established kind of a constitution for the Church of England called the Ten Articles. These articles go through a series of steps. Ten articles, six articles, 42 articles. Today is the 39 articles. So today, the Church of England has as its 
Constitution as its founding documents, the 39 articles they give the document statement of the Church of England. So he becomes the head of the, of, of the Church of England, and during his lifetime, the Church of England was really more Roman Catholic in doctrine except for some minor reforms. Henry confiscated church lands. He liked that. He got the money from the, the wealth of those lands and all that. And so in order to seal this deal, now here he is, 1534. He breaks with the church. Coverdale's Bible is printed in 1535. Kind of to seal this deal, uh, Coverdale's Bible is allowed to be brought into England and is brought in and allowed to be distributed. Anne Boleyn liked Coverdale's Bible, and uh, but it never gained official acceptance. It's not that the church said, this is our Bible, this is our authorized version. They never said that. Part of the problem was it was associated with Anne Boleyn, and quick and, and Henry lost, lost his favor with, you know, what was that they say about Henry VIII's wives, I won't keep you long. You know, he had six wives, and he didn't keep any of them too long. So he was he was growing, and Anne Boleyn, he was kind of getting tired of her, you know, and he's moving on to Jane Seymour. He always had one in the wings. And so uh, he, uh, he, uh, he uh, messed around with doctrine a little bit, but mostly Roman Catholic doctrine. They allowed Coverdale's Bible to, to be printed, but uh, that was about it. Um, so Henry annuls his marriage to Catherine of Aragon and he breaks with the Roman Catholic Church he marries Anne Boleyn now she's eventually executed for treason in 1536 and he's moving on to his third wife Jane Seymour that brings us to Thomas Matthew Matthew's Bible 1537 now, this is the pen name of John Rogers. He was also one of Tyndall's assistants. Now, it wasn't... The reason he called it Matthew's Bible, he didn't want to put his own name on it. It wasn't always wise to put your name on a Bible because you don't know what's going to happen. In fact, he was burned at the stake later on by Mary. He was martyred because... Uh, so, uh, it, it wasn't wise to uh, put your name, and he didn't. So, he had a pen name... Matthew's Bible. This was produced in 1537. So Coverdale produced his. Uh, Matthew was an assistant. He made his own revision in the 1537. Again, he used Tyndall's work. He used Coverdale's work. And he also had access to more of the Old Testament that Tyndall had translated. Tyndall had translated Joshua through Second Chronicles. Joshua through Second Chronicles from the Hebrew into English hadn't been published well he got it and he put it in his Old Testament what did he do for the rest of the Old Testament translated from the Latin Vulgate because again he was no Hebrew scholar or anything like that um, here's Matthew's Bible again kind of a gothic black type Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's 
Boy, that really got messed up, didn't it? Something happened to this slide. But these are all very similar. Now, Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, as I say here, under number four, wanted to get the Bible, wanted to get an official English Bible license. And so through the influence of uh, Thomas Cromwell, the king's chief minister, a royal license, as I say, was obtained for Matthew's Bible as well as the 1537 edition of Coverdale's Bible. So Cromwell, uh, Cranmer and Cromwell were responsible for uh, getting these Bibles um, licensed or at least allowed to be printed in the in, in England. This is Thomas Cromwell. I was. Did you did you do you watch PBS? Anybody watch? Did you watch that series Wolf Hall last? Uh, does anybody watch Wolf Hall? Nobody's interested in historical drawing. You saw Wolf Hall. What's funny in that Wolf Hall? It's about Thomas. It's about Thomas Cromwell. Huh? Oh. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, uh, what's what's funny about that? I don't know if you remember that, Tim. But they and they have a scene where this portrait is being painted. And they, they I was I, I, when we were watching this, I bought, pulled this slide up so fans you could see it because they have a backdrop exactly like this backdrop there in the in the in the documentary in the, in the masterpiece thing where that's being painted because it's all about Cromwell and so forth. Um, so uh, that brings us to the Great Bible, fifteen thirty nine. Now notice we have a line here because. They're basically revising, using others' work. It's one English Bible. And when we get to the King James, they're going to talk about in their introduction the English Bible. They don't talk about Tyndall's. They, they do, but they think of it as just one English Bible. Not We think of today the NIV and the ESV, King James, as sort of different Bibles. But they thought of this as just one progression of English Bibles, and they make a lot of reference to that point just uh, updating and revision. So as I say here, uh, Cranmer and Cromwell, Cranmer was the king's chief minister, Cromwell wanted the Bible to be placed in all the churches. See, they're trying to establish a distinction between (laughs) Rome and the Church of England. And of course, in the Protestant tradition, the head, our our final authority is the Bible, sola scriptura, it's not the Pope, In Roman Catholic tradition, the Bible is not above the Pope. The Pope's above the Bible. The magisterium's above the Bible. And the church tells you how the Bible should be interpreted. But in the Protestant tradition, the Bible is the ultimate authority. And we submit ourselves to God under the Bible. So they wanted to get a Bible in all the churches. This is the authority of the Bible and so forth. And so uh, they decide that the Bibles that were out there weren't the right size, weren't big enough. You know, we want a big Bible, a large Bible to be placed in the churches. And so they commissioned uh, Miles Coverdale, who had done obviously previous, previous work, for, to produce a Bible in 1539, and he produced the Great Bible of 1539. You can see it says, 
the Bible in English that is to say the content of all the Holy Scriptures, both of the Old and New Testament, truly translated. And I don't know what that word is. After the of the Hebrew and Greek, so forth. What's that? The first red letter edition. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Red letter edition. So as I say, this was a revision of Matthew's Bible by Coverdale. Just keep redoing, improving. For the first half, he followed Matthew's Bible. For the rest of the Old Testament, Coverdale made a revision of his own Bible. He's still, he's still using the Latin Vulgate. He's using German translations, other Latin translations. I mentioned a second edition in 1540. There's this 1539 a second edition in 1540, I mentioned down here, contained a preface by Thomas Cranmer, the king's chief minister. And it's often called uh, Cranmer's Bible. Here's John 3.16 in the 1539 Bible. Here's Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury. So here's the fifteen, uh, here's the fifteen forty edition, often called Cranmer's Bible, and notice it has this statement here: "This is the Bible appointed to the use of the churches." So here's the official first official Bible. We talk about the authorized version. The King James is the authorized version. The first Bible to be authorized to be used and read in the Church of England. That's what authorized means. And the first one is the Great Bible of 1539. This is the one the Church officially sanctioned to be used and read in the Church of England. So a copy of this was placed in all the churches in England. Um, the, the clergy were, were supposed to put it in a convenient place. Most of the time, these Bibles had chains on them, so you couldn't take them out of the church and so forth. Um, a copy cost about a month's wages. So an unbound copy cost 10 shillings. That's a month's wages. A bound copy cost 12 shillings. So you can see how expensive you know, a Bible would be. Here's the great Bible with the King James. Let's talk a little bit about Henry VIII again, from Henry VIII to Elizabeth I. The last years of Henry VIII's reign were marked by a turning away from Protestantism back towards Roman Catholicism. Remember, Henry was never really a Protestant in philosophy or mind or theology. He just broke with the Roman Catholic Church because he wanted to get a divorce from Catherine of Aragon. And to do that, he had to establish the Church of England. It wasn't because he was some great Protestant, some great believer in Protestant doctrine or anything like that. So in the end of his reign, coming to the end of his reign, 1540s, he's being attacked by European kings, by the Pope. And so he tries to uh, say, I'm really an Orthodox guy. 
except I just don't accept the supremacy of the Pope. I'm the supreme head of the church, but I'm orthodox. So he, he, he has, he has. remember the, the first uh, document for the Anglican Church was the Ten Articles. That article denied transubstantiation, said we don't believe in the Mass. The six articles he brought back um, in 15, uh, in the latter years here of his life, 1540s, the six articles brought back transubstantiation. So he, he almost brings back a Roman Catholic Church, except you know, you don't have the Pope as the head and so forth. And so many people had to flee during this time. Six articles, 1539. Miles Coverdale had to flee to Germany. So here's Coverdale, whose Bible was the great Bible that was in the churches, you remember, the authorized version, but things are getting tight, really tough. So 1540, he has to flee to Germany. Thomas Cromwell. Cromwell... The reputation of Cromwell is, is hard to hard to understand. They have different opinions in, but he, I think he was a real. He, he had Protestant sympathies and so forth, and he didn't fare well here because Henry was turning back. Cromwell also got in trouble because of Henry's fourth wife. We haven't mentioned Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour. We'll mention her in a moment. She she dies in childbirth, so Henry's looking for a fourth wife, and Cromwell suggests this woman, Anne of Cleves. She's a Protestant princess. She's from Germany. But Germany is, a lot of Germany is very Protestant now because of Luther and so forth. And so uh, Cromwell says we should cement our relations. We got these, we got the Spaniards against us. We got the French against us. Let's get some of these German people for us, you know. So he says you should marry this princess, Anna Cleves. And so he sent this picture of her, a little small dr- a drawing, a painting of her. And, and Cromwell says, marry her. And Henry says, okay, good. She comes to England, and she doesn't look like this at all. <laughs> and Henry ain't happy. <laughs> and he, he won't even consummate the marriage. In fact, he gets this marriage annulled, too. And Cromwell gets beheaded, you know. So you got to be careful who you propose, you know, for marriage. Be careful about your matchmaking, remember, because that's... <laughs> Get you in trouble here, I guess. Huh? <clears throat> so Henry the Eighth. So Henry the Eighth dies in fifteen forty seven, and when he dies, his son uh, Edward the Sixth becomes the king. Remember, his first wife Catherine of Aragon. His marriage was annulled. He had a daughter named Mary. Anne Boleyn was executed for treason in 1536. Whether true or not could be trumped up charges, hard to tell. She was accused of adultery and some other things. Her daughter was Elizabeth I. Then he married Jane Seymour. She died in childbirth but gave him a son, Edward, who became Edward VI, 1547. So here's Jane Seymour, unfortunately died in childbirth, and Edward VI becomes the king. Um, now, Edward VI was a real Protestant. He had been educated in school by these Protestant people in England at the time. He was very pro-Reformation, very Protestant. If you read about him, he seems to be a real, what we would say, evangelical Christian. If there you know, was one this time. He seemed to be the real, real deal. He was, he, you know, he was a real Bible believer from what we can tell you know, about him. 
And so he brought the church, he, he, he produced the 42 articles. Those 42 articles are still the, pretty much the founding doc, articles of the Church of England. They're very Calvinistic doc, uh, articles. These are very strong statement of faith and so forth. During his reign, no Bible, new Bibles were produced, but he allowed the printing of all those Bibles. He allowed Tyndall's Bible to be produced, Coverdale's Bibles, Matthew Bible, the Great Bible. The Great Bible is still the authorized Bible in the churches, but he allowed the printing of all these Bibles. Edward VI died, unfortunately, early in 1553. Only 16, see. And uh, there was an attempt to put his cousin on the throne, Lady Jane Grey, because she was a Protestant, Edward's a Protestant, but Mary's a Roman Catholic. Mary is the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, remember? And she's a Spanish princess. Her mother was a Roman Catholic. The marriage has been annulled. But the, the rulers, the, the nobility, won't having a, they won't go along with it. And so they rally to Mary, and Mary becomes the queen of... Uh, in 1553. She immediately halts the Reformation and brings the Church of England back into the Roman Catholic fold. England is now a Roman Catholic country. The Pope is the head of the Church and all that. So it, the Reformation is totally reversed as she brings it to a halt. John Rogers is burned at the stake. That is the Matthew's Bible. Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is burned at the stake. This we call her Bloody Mary. This is the period that Fox, Book of Martyrs, is mainly about. Fox talks about martyrs all throughout, but Fox was writing in this period mainly about the martyrs. She, she burned 300 at least. Coverdale escaped to Denmark. But no Bibles were printed during this time, but the Great Bible is still the Bible in the churches. Well, uh, after her death, 1558, Mary is succeeded by her sister, Elizabeth. She's the daughter of Anne Boleyn, a Protestant. So now Elizabeth brings the church out of the Roman Catholic Church again and reproduces the Church of England. Now, there's these comp competing forces in the Church of England. You've got people who are sympathetic to Roman Catholicism, you got people who are Protestant, very Reformation-oriented. So you've got these two things. Now, she, she does away with the Roman Catholic Church. She brings back the Church of England that we have today. Uh, she issues the Elizabethan Compromise, what's called the Elizabethan Compromise. It's kind of a compromise. If you look at the, the Anglican Church down through the ages, it was sort of a compromise between Reformation kind of churches, Protestant churches, and Catholic churches. There's a lot of high church stuff in the Church of England and so forth. They reduced the 42 articles to 38, 39 articles. Ultimately, she said 38, but then 39 articles ultimately. So she becomes uh, the supreme governor of the church. Instead of the head of the church, she's, she's given the title supreme governor. That's the title Elizabeth II has today. In fact, I was just noticing in the news that this month, Elizabeth II, the queen, is going to be heading up a church, a, a conference of the Anglican Church. She's going to head it up because she's the head of the church. She's the supreme governor of the Anglican Church. She's going to meet with all the Anglican clergymen, bishops, and so forth in England this month. 
So she establishes the Church of England as we know it together today, a kind of a compromise between Catholic and Protestant viewpoints. Now, during this period, there arise people called the Puritans. What are the Puritans? These are people in the Church of England who were unsatisfied with this compromise. They want to purify the Church of England. They want to get rid of these Roman Catholic aspects that are still hanging around in the Church of England. Do away with that and purify the church. This is what we call the Puritans. Some of these Puritans eventually left, went to Europe. Some of these Puritans in 1620 came to Plymouth Plantation. Some of these Puritans went back into England and established Baptist, the first Baptist churches. Actually, in, in actually in uh, Amsterdam, but then you know, ultimately in England. Here's Elizabeth the first. That brings us to the Geneva Bible, 1560. Many Englishmen, as I say here, including Coverdale, had fled to Geneva during Mary's reign because of uh, her persecution. And so, remember, because Mary reigned from 1558 to 1603, I mean, uh, 1553-1558, and they were there in the latter part of her reign, fled to Geneva, and they produced another Bible called the Geneva Bible. So, so the Geneva Bible was produced by a group of exiled Englishmen in Geneva when Mary was reigning. Now, by 1560, of course, Elizabeth had come to the throne, you know. But when they were producing this, they were in Geneva under Mary's reign. They, they, uh, the chief translator was William Whittington. William Whittingham. He was an Englishman, uh, a refugee from Mary's persecution. He married into John Calvin's family. We don't know whether it's his sister or probably sister-in-law. But he first produced a New Testament in 1557, which was largely a revision of Tyndall's work. And uh, he dedicated this 1560 Bible to the most noble, virtuous, to the most virtuous and noble Queen Elizabeth, Queen of England, France, Ireland, so forth. So here they are. She's come to the throne. They dedicate this Bible to Queen Elizabeth because they're hoping she will accept this Bible in England. You know, she's brought, the, she's brought back the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and they're dedicating this Bible to her, hoping that she will accept this Bible, and so forth. Um, this Bible has a number of interesting changes in it. Um, I don't know if you can see, but it has extensive notes here. Tremendous number of notes. It's, it doesn't have that block letter type anymore. It, uh, it has this clear Roman type, which is much easier to see, rather than that blocked letter, kind of Gothic type. So it's the first Bible to use verse division. See those verse divisions? One, two, three. Remember, they had been invented in 1551 by Stephanus, by Robert Estian in the Greek New Testament. This is 1560. They come into the first English Bible. 
This has a number of firsts. It's the first Bible to be translated completely from the original Hebrew and Greek. So the Old Testament, which, you know, before it had been translated a lot from the Latin Vulgate, is translated from the original Hebrew. This Bible has verse divisions. It has italics for words that are not in the original. You can see these italics here. For let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. See those italics there, like the King James has? Those are words that are necessary to make sense, but the Greek just doesn't have them, and so they just put them in italics. It has these extensive notes, tremendous notes. This is the first study Bible. This is the real first study Bible, like the NIV study Bible or MacArthur study Bible. This has extensive, extensive notes. You can see, you know, <coughs> this is the argument here of the Acts of the Apostles. You've got all these notes here. Here's John 3.16. Now, for about three quarters of a century, this was the most popular Bible in England. From the time it was produced in 1560, up through the 1620s to 30s, this was the Bible that was the most popular. This was the Bible people wanted. This is the Bible people had. When the King James came out, it was not well received. It took a long time for the King James to establish its dominance. This was the Bible that Protestants, Calvinists used. Um... There were 140 editions produced between 1560 and 1644. This is the Bible that Shakespeare quotes. This is the Bible that John Bunyan read. This is the Bible the pilgrims brought with them on the Mayflower. They would not allow a copy of the King James on the Mayflower. They said the King James is a fond thing vainly invented. We don't want it. If you go to Plymouth Plantation... And you go in one of the buildings, you'll find a copy of the Geneva Bible there, not the King James Bible at Plymouth Plantation. This was an extremely popular Bible, the most popular Bible in England. So we have this, we have this problem in the sense that we have the Geneva Bible is the most popular Bible in England, but the Bible in the church is still the great Bible. All right, we've gone over. Sorry to keep you so long. Like Henry VIII, you know. <laughs> we'll see you next week, Lord willing.